0: Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the abiding Eddie Matthews. How you doing today, Eddie?
1: Doing great. Just uh, drinking two White Russians as we speak,
0: one in each nice. hand. I got some Virgin White Russians over here. It's uh, 2%. So doing White 20%. Russian.
1: White Russian. That's another Gulf War reference. That's true. Think, it, think about true. it. Soviet? Anyways.
0: Well, that makes uh, That's a great build-up, a lead-in. What, what do you want to talk about specifically about The Big Lebowski? Also, if you haven't seen The Big Lebowski, there will be spoilers, so go watch it. Also, if you haven't seen The Big Lebowski, do yourself a favor and yeah. turn off this podcast and go watch it. Then come back, of course. No, watch don't, it no.
1: <laughs> don't turn off this podcast.
0: <laughs> and we'll do just a good job He's explaining it as the Coen Brothers. So, yeah, basically, you're going to get everything you need from this.
1: Yeah, I think we'll talk about the movie more generally, why we love it, why it's an American classic, why it's probably in my top 10 favorite movies ever. Uh, Not even, I'm not even going to equivocate. It definitely is. Is Um, it your favorite
0: Coen Brothers film, hands down?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. Um, But, I mean, that's not to say there aren't many other good Coens that I like. Uh, But, yeah, we're going to take an angle then that, that's perhaps a bit novel. Uh, although you'll find this angle on the internet as well,
0: but everything's on the internet. Though, yeah. So it
1: doesn't... Yeah. Uh, we're going to compare it or, or look at it as, a, as an, as an allegory for the goal for, or, or um, certainly uh, an abstract metaphor in many respects, but why don't we just uh, go through, I don't even know how you would give a plot summary of this movie actually it's set in los angeles uh in d- during the time of the go for so they never really specify the exact date but we're thinking probably 1990 1991 somewhere in that um time frame
0: yeah and for people who haven't seen it the genre it, it's a sports bowling movie so now that you're with us you can go back to the plot
1: right uh, bowling is definitely the <laughs> setting of the movie. It's the motif in the movie. It's a recurring element. There's a lot of loving uh, shots of you know a bowling ball slowly going down a lane, striking a set of pins. Um, there's a lot of montages of bowling fantasies. There's a lot of references. Uh, bowling seems to be the, the therapeutic activity for our heroes in this story. However, there's not like... We never actually see the
0: dude bowl. Have you noticed that? We That's
1: never true. see him throw a ball. I was
0: mostly know. kidding about it being a bullying movie. But, no, I I say, <laughs> but it, it is, is the most famous bullying movie even though it's not a bullying movie.
1: Yeah. Um, so, our uh, main characters, the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, and Walter played by John Goodman, which I think is one of the most iconic... I mean, they're both iconic performances, but I actually prefer Goodman's performance of Walter. It, it's it's unparalleled.
0: He said this was his favorite role he's ever done as well, which is unsurprising, <laughs> but still nice to hear.
1: It's so good. Um, so Walter is... They're both, what, like mid-40s?
0: Yeah, that's a good guess.
1: And uh, Walter's a Vietnam vet, which... Uh, figures heavily into the story and into our parallel, I think, as well. The dude, it, do we know? Do these guys have jobs? I don't know what Walter does. The dude definitely doesn't have a job because that's mentioned several times. It just seems like yeah. they're, <laughs> I don't know how they make rent money, but <laughs> they're just hanging this is, out.
0: Hey, this is the 90s, man. It was yeah. a simpler time.
1: The economy was booming. So
0: um, even an unemployed can afford fancy Persian rugs. So. Yeah, exactly.
1: The inciting incident of the story, why don't we just start with there, is the dude minding his own business in his apartment. Um, I believe he is, I can't remember, he comes home and they're already there. He's uh, assaulted by two gentlemen that he doesn't know, and they're asking him where the money is. He has no idea what they're talking about. And clearly, uh, you know, he's not a man of means if he look at his apartment. And so these two heavies come in and they ask him where the money is. And then he's like, I'm not who you think I am. And then the two heavies put it together where it's like, wait a second, this guy can't have a million dollars. Look at where he lives. And then one of the heavies urinates on his rug. And this uh, is what the dude cannot abide.
0: The and that's taken from a quote that he hears early in the movie. And that's one of the the kind of recurring rhetorical bits that the Coens use is that the dude's personality and kind of lexicon is built on things other people tell him that he just regurgitates in separate situations. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe
1: in a future episode, if we get some good feedback on this one,
0: <laughs> which who knows,
1: <laughs> um, I think this movie... Also, is about language refraction in the sense of language uh, basically leaving one person's mouth and ricocheting across different settings and landing in another person's mouth and being repeated. It's so it's all throughout the movie. There's dozens of examples. We won't walk you through every single one, but if you watch this movie, um, maybe you've seen it before, maybe you've never seen it before have that in the back of your head like look at all of the lines that are repeated by different characters who don't know each other who use the same references um because they hear them from perhaps a different character that's like one step removed from the two in the conversation it's pretty fascinating
0: yeah definitely co brothers are brilliant so
1: oh they're brilliant So once uh, the urinating of the rug occurs uh, and the heavies let, you know, uh, the dude go because, you know, he's clearly not the one with the money that they need. The dude, whose last name is Lebowski, puts it together that, wait a second, they're just looking for another guy named Lebowski. And he looks up, you know, this multimillionaire who lives in this mansion, who's also named Lebowski, and he goes to uh, tell them that... uh, tell the big Lebowski who's a portly gentleman and looks a bit like Dick Cheney I don't know if you knows that
0: he does he does indeed
1: so um, he goes to his mansion and he talks to his assistant played by the brilliant Philip Seymour Hoffman ah, he's and so this. he's so good and he tells him the situation hey these two guys came looking for me they said I owed money they actually were looking for you you must owe them money but also they peed on my rug and I would like a new rug. (laughs) And so he takes home a new rug and just chaos ensues. Um, Eventually the big Lebowski calls the dude up to uh, basically be the, the go-between to deliver the $1 million that these men are demanding because the big Lebowski, the, the portly gentleman multimillionaire, his wife has been uh, captured. She's been taken. And so, uh, the, you know, hired the big, <laughs> they hired the dude to go give them the money. And then, uh, I mean, we can't really spoil too much because we would just spend an hour and a half going through every single piece of chaos. And then to describe how that leads to one, it like it just has this domino effect that is so chaotic and fun and bizarre and unlike any other movie you've ever seen that i think we'll just kind of stick to our interpretation of a go for allegory and unless there are some you know related elements that we that we must uh describe before moving forward what do you think morgan
0: yeah that sounds good i think it's such a complicated movie in terms of plot points that it's not going to be super interesting for people to listen to it unless they more or less get the movie or have seen it recently so Right.
1: So that leads us into our, our metaphor. You might say
0: it's complicated, like warfare or the reasons one might go to (laughs) war. Well, the whole time,
1: you know, the dude gets pulled into these conversations. Uh, He talks to the cops multiple times, different cops. Uh, His car gets stolen. Uh, The money that he's supposed to deliver, he actually doesn't deliver it because he takes Walter and Walter's like, no, let's just keep the money for ourselves. And he throws a different uh, bag full of his dirty undies to, you know, fake out the the guys who are looking for the money. And, um, but yeah, the reason he keeps being brought into these situations where they're like, what happened? Do you have the money? Uh, How do I get information about this person? And his response is always like... It's really complicated, man. Lot of ins, lot of outs. Uh, It just kind of got out of hand. I don't know. There's uh, new shit has come to light, (laughs) but he never, like, articulately explains what happened or like the details, unless it's advantageous, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's hilarious. There's so many good characters. I I think if we get into the the warfare aspects, I think my interpretation of it is a little bit more abstract Uh, but I think a lot of these characters can be thought of almost in like a Jungian sense of kind of like archetypes brought to their most extreme and that's sort of where the comedy I think comes into the plot. It's just the characters themselves are so ridiculous that the plot is almost secondary in terms of what you're actually paying attention to.
1: Totally I completely agree so I'll walk us through all of the Gulf War references uh, in the movie are and, these just
0: Gulf War, or are these any reference to like war in general?
1: No, these are predominantly
0: predominantly Gulf War, okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um but also but also a little both. Okay. So uh the very first scene, even before the urinating of the rug happens, uh the dude is in Ralph's and he yes. is buying uh, Hey, no liter- free pub. <laughs>
0: Yeah. he's in a, an unnamed convenience stuff
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: we should uh get ralph to pitch in for this episode
1: <laughs> so he's uh in ralph's and he's buying a liter of milk you know because for the white russians that he's always making and then uh he gets to the till and it's <laughs> great scene where he <laughs> writes out a check for 69 cents for the for <laughs> the liter of milk um and but he looks up on the, on the TV that's right above the tail, and George H.W. Bush is uh, at a news conference or, you know, uh, on the White House lawn with the media, and he says that this aggression will not stand, this aggression from Iraq, uh, referencing, you know, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait will not stand. And so the dude's kind of like, oh. And then, you know, goes on his merry way. Um, and even before that, actually, there's a narrator, um, to the, the way that he narrates the story or the way that he opens the story is to say just around the time of the conflict with Saddam and the Iraqis. Right. Yeah. So that's how we're introduced to the movie. Then we have the Ralph scene. Then we have George W. Bush on the TV saying the discretion will not stand, um, The, uh, later when the dude is at the bowling alley with his bowling team, which includes, uh, John Goodman's Walter, the Vietnam vet, he's explaining the situation and he says how this, uh, Chinese American guy, one of the heavies peed on his rug. And Walter describes that as unchecked aggression. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, later on the dude is talking to philip seymour hoffman the assistant and he's like oh did you go to college and the dude says no i I went to college but i spent most of it uh occupying buildings and so you kind of have this uh peaceful protest uh you know element to the dude Uh, later on he mentions who knows if (laughs) this is true it might be an unreliable source he mentions that he was one of the authors of the Port Huron statement. Um
0: Yeah, that's so one of the things I, I found when I looking this up is that there's this guy named Jeff Dowd, who actually was part of the Seattle Seven who did that, who was the inspiration for the dude actually, and is like friends with the Cohen brothers.
1: No uh Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um then uh back at the bowling alley, Walter quotes Theodore Herzl, who's the father of Zionism. Uh Walter's also Jewish. Kind of another uh, wrinkle to the story, which comes in uh, in a very uh, chaotic, funny way uh, to the movie because you know there's an emergency, but it's on the Sabbath, so you know. Anyways, Mm. Um, Walter pulls a gun on Smokey, one of the rival uh, teams.
0: Totally warranted, though.
1: Yeah, for going over the line. And, uh, you know, have a a bowling foul, as it were. And uh, Smokey, you know, refuses uh, to say that he did it. And so they get into this argument and uh, Walter says, mark it a zero. And Smokey says, no, that's an eight. And then uh, he pulls pulls the gun on him. And uh, basically the dude is trying to talk him down. And then in the parking lot afterward, they have this argument about, you know, pacifism versus aggression. And the dude's a pacifist, and he's, and he's uh, arguing for pacifism. And then Walter responds, look at our current situation with Iraq. Pacifism is not something to hide behind. <laughs> that's his response, you know, and that's why you know, in his head he pulled a gun on, a, on the teammate for a foul. Because he's, he's very rule-oriented, because you know? he came out of this, this, this place in Vietnam where there were no rules. You know? So now sure he's very, very cognizant of the rules in American society. Um. So, oh, and then another uh, reference to Nam. Uh, I think in the parking lot afterward too. He says, Walter says, uh, once a plane gets too complex, everything can go wrong. <laughs> so I feel like that's kind of his. Uh, and you know, he's referencing that in to Nam. You know, there's kind of a. And I would say as far as the, I mean, we'll. And then I have uh, about five more references that are in the movie, but. I think to stick a pin in that for the moment, uh, Americans like their wars simple and straightforward with good and bad and not to think about ramifications. And I kind of feel like after Vietnam, there was probably very little tolerance for a massively, you know, complicated interventionist uh, Cold War you know american soviet struggle and i think that uh the gulf war was something that the more you drill into it the more it doesn't necessarily seem like it was something worth the uh intervention but that they were able to pull off because it was um i don't know i guess (sighs) made made simple for the American public to consume, perhaps?
0: Yeah, I think one interesting thing is that they called uh, the Gulf War like the video game war because it was one of the first conflicts to occur with like 24-7 news broadcasts where people are following along as if it is some sort of movie. And I think in the context of producing a movie around this time, I think that is kind of baked in the idea that this war was sort of happening in the background of people's lives, but it wasn't necessarily central to what people thought. It wasn't like one of the world wars where everything had to stop. It was just kind of routinized where life goes on and war just exists in the background as another thing that we do as a country. Um, And I think they're kind of critiquing that in a way as well.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point because in this movie all of these references are very much in the background because there's so much going on and there's so much like to draw your attention towards. You could easily... Mm-hmm. like, I've seen this movie several times and I missed most of this stuff on repeated viewings, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's a dream sequence where uh, the dude gets drugged and then he's in this kind of uh, reverie and he goes into a bowling alley and saddam is the attendant working the bowling alley and giving him his shoes Mm -hmm. um and then the last note that i had here was whoever that uh, that
0: actor was looked exactly like Saddam. yeah fair enough fair play to them
1: um and then there's there's one last reference when walter in analyzing the gulf war compares it to vietnam and saying it should be easy to win because the Iraqis are not equal enemies to the Viet Cong. Also, they didn't have tanks in Nam. So basically, just saying like, jungle warfare was a different ball game. The uh, enemy was way more motivated. We were, uh, you know, not well equipped for that terrain. You know, the Middle East should be easy for Americans to just go in, bomb, get out of there, and uh, make quick work of it.
0: I mean, that's so, an interesting one because it's more explicit. I think from a kind of Warfare history side, <laughs> the harbinger of Vietnam has remained pretty much the point of reference for every subsequent conflict the. US has been involved with since. It is basically the, you know, the abiding failure that everyone points to anytime there is a hint at an invasion or a conflict, or you know even with the kind of Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, of Ukraine, there have been you know, many evocations of Vietnam and what it would be like to be stuck on the ground there. And it's sort of held up as you know the quagmire of all quagmires. Um, and so that, that kind of reflects, I think, more the military side as something closer to what you think, uh, or I think you're trying to say about these interpretations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what you said about it being in the background of the movie and in it being in the background of Americans' lives at the time is totally accurate. Um, there's an interesting thing about the Gulf War, too, in terms of how it started in a way that, we're seeing with uh russian ukraine right now too where saddam saw kuwait as like an illegitimate independent country because in his you know um false interpretation he you know said it was illegally arbitrarily created from the league of nations and that it's part of iraq it's not true but you know that was the interpretation that he was uh that was the narrative he was operating from to invade to kind of bring it into the good iraq and then also to go after all the oil uh, that was in kuwait of course um so once that happens then you get you know the the uh george hw bush this regression will not stand and then un puts a coalition of armed forces together which is a really fascinating coalition if you think about it now it's like saudi arabia egypt us france uk and many others um, but i just thought that that was like a, an interesting alliance um, and then, uh, they threatened, you know, military force would be used if, uh, Saddam didn't pull out, uh, and then it was U S went in, um, among others. And then I would say
0: the similarities to the Ukraine, just cause we're talking about that now is that yeah. I've seen a lot of interpretations of this invasion where Saddam was not, not really taking seriously a lot of the threats that the yeah. U S would stand up and defend Kuwait um in a ways that i've heard people say that putin didn't necessarily expect the west to come to ukraine's aid quite as as supposedly as they they have Uh, so there's definitely some similarities there
1: yeah um so and then to my understanding there was operation desert storm you know more kind of from the aerial sky attack and then operation desert saber which was more of the ground attack to go free the capital city of kuwait and liberate it. And that took only like four days, I think, uh, the latter. And so they, uh, at that point, the U.S. deemed it a success, uh, pulled out, decided not to replace the regime in Iraq, left Saddam in power. And we all know, you know, eventually how that story ends. So yeah, that's kind of the the quick and dirty on the go forward unless I'm, I mean, obviously there's tons of details in there, but is there anything
0: no no i think you've got a honorary doctorate at west point coming up okay
1: okay um what are we to make of why put this in a bowling movie if you're the cohen's like what, if you're making a movie that's a comedy we should say that too in case it's not obvious already the big lebowski is definitely a comedy there's not yeah I mean, it's it's not even a tragic comedy. It's just, no. you know, a pretty straightforward comedy. Um, and it's, you know, an absurdist story. There's a German nihilist in there. Um, I believe in nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it just, uh, it touches on so many things of like kind of L.A. culture and American culture at the time. Why, if you're the Coens, why is this in here? Like, what is what do you think they're trying to communicate about i don't know the gulf war war in general american culture vietnam like what what do you make of this
0: yeah i'm not sure so my sort of broader interpretation of like i mean it's undoubtable i think maybe people listening to this think that oh there's some references here or there but the the theme of the war in the background is very apparent when you're looking for it, and I think the yeah the interesting thing is that it's in in a movie where you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be references to some sort of broad political conflict uh, because it is a comedy and there's ridiculous moments and there's a ransom you know uh, plot going on in the background and they're bowling, um, but I, I think it's more so. This is why I go back to kind of the union archetypal thing. I think. The war in this sense is used more as sort of a metaphor for like life itself. Like what is your approach to a problem or a challenge? And even when that challenge is somewhat manufactured or like in the case of the rug is maybe not that important at all. Or you have things like a a kidnapping which are seemingly important but then could be more complicated than they seem. How do you, in terms of just your disposition approach the problems in life? Do you feel, you know, aggrieved against? Do you take up arms on every provocation like Walter, John Goodwin's character? Do you just let things slide over you and try to get as minimally involved as possible so you can kind of see it as an isolationist versus interventionist uh, kind of narrative? Or do you kind of just remain ignorant to everything like Steve Buscemi who is like barely even uh, acknowledged by the other characters for most of the movie until he passes away? Um, unceremoniously and so i think it is more of kind of a philosophy movie about life itself there are these important things that are going on in the background that are much larger than any of these characters the plot that's happening in the moment but the way that the u.s is approaching that warfare is very similar to the way these individuals are kind of approaching these more menial problems in everyday life
1: yeah no i think that's a good way of putting it so Walter is definitely the stand in for the interventionist. He's very decisive. He's very certain.
0: Um, He literally pulls a gun.
1: (laughs) He literally pulls a gun. He never once questions himself or uh, questions his rationale or really tries to learn anything new about a situation other than the basics. And then once he has the bears, yeah.
0: I think I was just saying one of the great examples of that is, is when the the dude kind of speculates that maybe she kidnapped herself he just goes full in he's like yeah that's exactly what happened basically <laughs> yeah. stuffs the suitcase full of like takes the money stuffs the suitcase with something else and then afterwards when everything blows up he still goes ah well screw it it's all their fault she kidnapped herself <laughs> anyways." like has absolutely no back tread or doesn't learn anything from the situation i think there's a lot of parallels there to the kind of military industrial complex where it's like yes vietnam was this terrible thing but you can just reference Vietnam all you want if you're not actually taking lessons away from it. Yeah. The point.
1: Seriously. Yeah. So the refrain, uh, which is, you know, a, a popular line from the movie. Uh, and, you know, part of what Walter's known for is several times in, in the movie, he goes, am I wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> and it's funny because the first time I watched it, it was just like a funny John Gibbon thing. And, I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess, he's, uh, I guess he's right a lot. And then you realize rewatching it, he's like wrong all the time. <laughs> he just never uh, comes to it or people don't call him out or, you know, new shit comes to light, man. <laughs> and then it's not um, compared to what Goodman thought before. But there's that classic line where he goes, am I wrong? Am I wrong? He goes, and then the dude responds no, Walter, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. (laughs) And I love that part. But I think that this kind of, I don't know, like, um, American foreign policy at times has basically kind of been perhaps massively overconfident in the uh, use of force that we have and like the just... um, very limited understanding that we have of other cultures that we invade and kind of thinking that we can go in, set up a democracy, peace out and that everything will be fine. Um, I think this kind of mentality is so hilariously embodied by Walter, this kind of this hubris and this, I don't know. It's not distinctly American but there's something very American about it, this, this type of overconfidence in every situation based on limited information that you have.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the, like, the, the point is, if, if you go to Vietnam and you're comparing it to a new war and you're trying to, like, figure out what lessons should be taken away and your takeaway is, like, oh, there's less jungles. <laughs> like, that's the takeaway. I think it's, like, purposely naive in almost every circumstance. And the sort of obfuscation, obfuscation of... Um, like any problem and the deflection of every issue to other people is sort of what makes the character funny, but also what makes the character kind of like a satire on the military industrial complex more generally.
1: Yeah. Um, And then to kind of the dudes, obviously the standard for like the kind of pacifist uh, way of handling complex problems. And the dude is he's perfectly named obviously cause he kind of just like drifts and like floats through life and mm-hmm. things happen to him. And then he just bounces around to the next thing and he never really puts anything into action. And anytime he does, there's always somebody else with him that's like driving the action. And he's just uh, a passive observer of everything, but he's the one consistent, you know, person in every scene of this movie but he's never really making anything happen, you know?
0: Yeah, pretty much every time he does something, it's directed by Walter. or He's following something that has happened to him and he's kind of reacting. He's not actually creating much at all.
1: Yeah, and you can kind of see how much damage and chaos can happen from not taking action at the appropriate times, you know?
0: Did you think that his character is like, Aspir- like inspirational, aspirational in a way that if you thought, do you think more people should be like the dude or do you think the dude is somewhat of a cautionary tale in the other direction? Do you think it's, like, how would you interpret people that use the dude as inspiration for their own kind of personal lives?
1: No, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think
0: he's somebody that people should aspire to be like. Did you know there's a whole religion based on the dude where they try to follow the principles of Judaism? really is it like a burning man i mean i don't know but it's all over the world and it's you know i think infused with like a taoism and it's a bit more serious than the movie version but it's a real thing
1: wow um yeah i don't think he's somebody to aspire to be like because uh you know he's he has no um income or savings (laughs) or really definable philosophy other than just kind of hang out and let things transpire which uh you know can uh lead to many different suboptimal outcomes as we see especially when he seems to be drawn to just um agents of chaos too not just walter but um the daughter of the Le- the Big Lebowski, Maud, mm-hmm. who in her own way is just uh, kind of a vixen. Terrific, Julianne
0: Moore as well. Who she's so great, good, but she's really, really good at this.
1: Um. So yeah, he's just kind of taken along. Uh, he conceives a child with her, but it's <laughs> afterward that she's telling that she tells him like why she slept with him was that she wants to have a child but doesn't want the father to be a part of it. And so the dude can abide that, you know, he just didn't (laughs) want to be a father. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I think that I have friends and you probably have friends too, who are like this, they kind of just like float through life and they keep coming across people who kind of take care of them and seem to, you know, be getting along fine. I'm just like blown away by it. Cause I, uh, I'm someone who can't not strategize, <laughs> you know.
0: I think of the, the dude's like philosophy as aspirational in a way of like more of a libertarian kind of, I think if we lived in a world where you could not have a job and then just relax and not have to worry about anything too challenging, that would be great. <laughs> I don't think we do. So I'm not sure like if that makes sense. I think the ability to live like the dude would be a sign that things are going well um which is kind of i think part of the point that the movie's trying to make is that it's not really possible it is somewhat of a fiction that you can be this relaxed in the face of real world
1: yeah i mean and maybe there's something to be said for there being like i i think obviously there's a continuum of the dude on one side and walter on the other side as two extremes on the same continuum and hopefully there's some sort of balance between knowing when not to intervene and when to intervene on complex problems, you know, and when to insert yourself. I think that uh, to stick with the go for analogy, um, you know, maybe in the, Again, this movie's indirect about so many things, so maybe it's silly to even say that this movie's directly critiquing anything, because it's just so oblique on mm. so many kind of angles. But um, maybe there's something to be said for you know, the times that this, that this movie was made, which came out in 1998, kind of arguing for a um, more tempered strategy of foreign intervention something that's not completely hands-off but not uh sending troops to every uh armed conflict anywhere in the world you know so yeah i think the best
0: satire it's it's taking each of these characters and showing the flaws with all of these very kind of kind of diametric uh or like essentialist takes on foreign policy but also on anything right like if you're a caricature some sort of belief and you you're a nihilist or like they use in the movies or like you have a philosophy that you follow to the fullest there are going to be nuances in life that don't fit well to your philosophy that's not how life works you can't necessarily live by like a single principle and apply it to everything because life is messy and I think that's sort of somewhat what they're critiquing. And there are worse things than others, right? It'd be much better for everyone to be based on The Big Lebowski than on Walter. But each of them has their flaws that are somewhat, uh, you know, vile.
1: Yeah. And maybe another more general thing that could be said about this movie uh, that perhaps like Cohen's are trying to communicate is that every single... Every character in this movie is like a world unto themselves, you know. And mm-hmm. uh in you know perhaps it's trying to communicate something about every situation that you come across there is an unfathomable amount of depth and complexity and detail. And so naturally when you go through life you're going to have to make snap judgments and you're going to have to act without all the information. But maybe it's incumbent on us to at least be aware if you come across another individual uh, in a situation, you're seeing, you know, one percent of them, and there's ninety nine percent of them that you are not privy to that might inform kind of your worldview as you go through life. A few examples of this being, you know, the guy that Walter uh, pulls the gun on is Smokey, yeah. and we see him in the movie for like thirty seconds, you know, or like uh, sixty seconds at most, and then later. Uh, the dude talks about how like Smokey has um, like a uh, a nervous condition, or you know he's he's a very sensitive guy and has like a you know a diagnosable nervous condition, and then um, you know Bunny, who is a porn star, who's the trophy wife of the Big Lebowski, she's actually a runaway um from you know this family in. Minnesota, who's looking for her, who sent a private investigator. And then, uh, you know, it's just like on and on and on. The guy who's the landlord of the dude is like a really nice guy who asked the dude to come to his dance quintet. And so there's a scene in the movie where the dude goes to his landlord's like one man show where he's just performing this dance routine. <laughs> and it's just every character in the movie. In any other movie, they would just be like, okay, here's a character. They fulfill this. Uh, they say these lines, which moves the prop forward. Then we get rid of them. It's like every character in this movie, even if they're only in it for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, there's an entire like world behind that person. And sometimes it's communicated in indirect ways or like a throwaway line later in the movie. Or, and sometimes you just get like an intimation of it but everybody has some sort of background and it's pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the, the characters in this movie are incredible. And I think Cohen are really good at that in general. Like a lot of their movies have some incredible minor characters, but they're so central to the plot in this one. I just think it really takes it to another level.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could just go on and on with all of the characters, but I really encourage, uh, anyone to watch this movie and just again, pay attention to that, to just every character that you see is never just um, uh, there to fill a function They're yeah. They're coming through and it's like that, that play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Do you remember that one? Yeah. 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 It's the whole play basically exists with these two characters when they're not in Hamlet in the Shakespeare play. So it's written like, what are they doing when they're not on stage, you know, performing their lines? Like, where are they? And they're in this sort of limbo and they're, you know, these fully realized people and it's very existential. I kind of feel that way about this movie. Um, you know, the people that we see aren't just visiting the plot. They're going about, you know, their entirety of their lives. And then they just intersect with our heroes in this glimpse, but then, you know, they continue on. Um, so, yeah it's the best
0: it is definitely let us know if you watch it and you see anything that we missed or you'd like to add um and let us know if there's any other movies out there that you'd like us to check out or give a a new, new reading to we'll we'll be here on the pod